Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is the author and environmental activist Derek Jensen. Some of his books include A Language Older Than Words, The Culture of Make-Believe, and the two-volume set that introduced me to his work, Endgame. As with the Dave Jackie interview, this is an intense and open conversation. We talk about the natural world, our role as human beings within it, and the violence that occurs when we become disconnected from that sense of place. We end with how we all have the ability to make a difference in caring for Earth, this place that is our home. If you are familiar with Derek's work, this interview takes much the same progression moving in a non-linear fashion that draws together a number of ideas to make a point. The language he uses is often blunt and very direct. There is no mincing of words, and the conversation can get intense, and maybe even a little uncomfortable at times, with the frank questions about cultural and societal violence. This is one of the few shows that may not be for everyone, but is worth listening to if you are open to the topics at hand. Now then, on to Derek Jensen. Derek, if you could give us a bit of your background, biography, how you came to do what you're doing, and then we can talk about this disconnect between human beings, the natural world, and how that leads to violence. I guess I, you know, it really starts, I mean, there, there are a couple of threads here. One of them is that I, when I was a child, we, we lived out in the country. And when I was in second grade, they put in a subdivision near where I lived and next to where I lived. And all the meadows were destroyed. All the meadows were turned into a suburb. And I saw that the meadowlark habitat, you know, the meadowlarks had nowhere to live and that the garter snakes had nowhere to live and the, the ants and grasshoppers and everybody else who, who were always there when I was out playing, um, they all lost their homes. And even as a child, I remember thinking, I didn't use sophisticated words to think about it, but I remember thinking this can't go on forever because if you have an economy or if you have a way of life that's constantly expanding, where's everybody else going to live? And if you keep doing this on a finite planet, then you're going to run out of space. And so my point is, even in second grade, I, I knew that you couldn't have infinite growth on a finite planet. But just And once again, I didn't use that language. I probably did not know the word infinite in second grade, but I knew you couldn't. I knew this was just crazy. And so that's that's one place. And then the next thing is that, that really informed a lot of my understanding was that, and you know this from a language older than words and from other books, that my, my father is extremely violent. He, he broke my sister's arm, and my brother had epilepsy from blows to the head, and he raped my mother, my sister, and me. I remember thinking, even when I was a kid, if his destructive behavior isn't making him happy, why is he doing it? So there's another thread that began when I was a kid, is, is asking this question of why do people perpetrate destructive behavior? Okay, so then we fast forward up to when I'm in high school and I was capable of doing math and was in my, um, you know, taking calculus in high school. And if you take calculus in high school, then it's pretty much presumed that you're going to be an engineer. And I got a scholarship to an engineering school, Colorado School of Mines, and didn't enjoy it at all. And I thought about transferring. In fact, at one point, I, I went to the registrar at the University of Colorado, and I said, I'm thinking of transferring to the University of Colorado to go to school in English. And 
the person at the registrar's office looked at me and said, you have a scholarship to the School of Mines. You're thinking of transferring to the University of Colorado. Are you crazy? And so then I started asking a lot of my friends and acquaintances and classmates if they liked what they were doing. And most everybody hates the School of Mines. It's a four-year boot camp. And one reason that the people who go to the School of Mines get good jobs when they get out of there is because it's really hard and they know that you can work when you get out. But most everybody is really unhappy and they were – but they were saying, you know, when I get out of here, I'm going to buy myself a nice, a nice car. And so that started me on this thing of asking people if they like their jobs, just, you know, like if I'm just anywhere. And about 90% of people say no. So then I started asking, what does it mean when the vast majority of people spend the vast majority of their waking hours doing things they don't want to do? It seems, it seems kind of crazy. And, um, and then I, I, I worked – summers in college i worked at the national oceanic and atmospheric administration the job itself wasn't bad it was if i had to work in science that would have been a great place to work because they they weren't doing like corporate work it was actual research pure research pretty interesting stuff but meanwhile i don't really like my job and my bosses love their work and i remember one day one of my bosses got sick and he um he called in sick, but then he showed up at work like two hours later. I was like, why are you here? And he said, because I, I just couldn't bear to miss the experiment we're working on. And I used to call in sick when it's a nice day. You know, huh, I'm sick of work. So that really started to affect me. It's like, we only get one life. What we should do with our life is what we really love to do. So I became a beekeeper, and um, I was doing that with the aim of becoming a writer. And, okay, that's all fine. And then in my mid-20s, I realized I wasn't paying enough for gas, that what we pay for gasoline does not cover the social or ecological costs. So I wanted to start paying back. And I, 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 this is really important because at the time I wasn't an activist and I didn't, I just knew everything's messed up and I didn't know what to do. The problems are so big. What can I do? So I wasn't doing anything. And this is one of my points I'm going to make time and again throughout my whole career is that the important thing is that we do something. You know, the important thing is that people actually do some work that, that, the big distinction is not between those who believe that you need to fight back militantly and those who don't. The big distinction is not between the revolutionaries and reformists. The big distinction is between those who do something and those who do nothing at all. And there is so much that can be accomplished. There's a line that my grandmother, my great-grandmother used to tell my mother all the time, and this has just been imbued into my life, is inch by inch life's a cinch. You know, this is how I've written 20-some books is I don't write books. I write one page at a time. And, you know, I just do the work, and before you know it, I got a book. And I really strongly believe that we need to just do the work. If, if we don't do it, nothing's going to happen. And so that's what I believe now. But at the time, I didn't know what was going on. So I realized I wasn't paying enough for gas. So I decided every time I buy gasoline, I'm going to contribute an equal amount of money to a local environmental organization. Never a big one, but a local one. So if I, if I bought... A ga- if I bought a tank of gas, which in the early 80s or mid-80s cost 10 bucks, so if I bought a tank of gas, I would have to give $10 to a local environmental organization, but I didn't have any money. So what I started doing is um, paying myself $5 an hour to do activism. So I would write letters to the editor or I would – then after that, I started doing anti-fur demos, anti-circus demos. And then I moved on from there to doing timber sale appeals. I got hooked up with some environmentalists who who really channeled my energy. And the point is that within a few months, 
I was having so much fun with the activism that I stopped keeping track of the other, but it was a way that I got started. And so I'm always looking for how do people get started? Okay, so that that takes us part of the way. And then as, a, as an activist, you know, we were working mainly on forest issues and also salmon issues. And we were filing timber sale appeals. We were trying to do to work on dam removal on the Columbia Basin. And we were actually pretty successful at doing timber sale appeals. And I was just a very small part of this. I, I'm, I'm not trying to claim too much responsibility for this. I was just, once again, I was a very, very small contributor to this, but part of it. And But people all over the country were doing these timber sale appeals. Where I lived, the people there were able to shut down some forest service timber sale programs because all of the timber sales were illegal and we were forcing them to obey the law. And what happened with people doing this all over the country is that the timber industry and the government got together and which they always do and they passed something called the salvage rider. We were we were arguing that the forests are in a state of ecological collapse and you need to stop logging. And so they passed the salvage rider saying the forests are in a state of ecological collapse, which is why we need to cut them down. I don't know, it's completely insane, but the real point here is whenever you figure out a way to use their rules to stop them, they change the rules. And one other point I want to make is it was really clear to me and to all the other activists I was working, all the grassroots activists, it was really clear to us that we were just doing delaying tactics. We're holding on by our fingernails as we wait for this culture to collapse, that if this culture keeps going or as this culture keeps going, it will grind away at everything until there's nobody left. And so it's like a doctor friend of mine always says that the first step toward cure is proper diagnosis. You know, it wasn't good enough for me that we merely stave off the inevitable by trying to protect this or that piece of ground for a short time. What I want to do is make sure it lasts forever. And on one hand, it, it's protected. I want... And the part of the way to do that is to go to the source. What is the source of the problem? It's like an environmentalist friend of mine, John Osborne, one of my mentors, my, prim my primary mentor, used to say a lot of environmentalists begin by wanting to protect a specific piece of ground, and they end up questioning the foundations of Western civilization. And the reason is because they, we start by wanting to protect a specific place, and then you start asking, why is this place being destroyed? And then if you ask that question, you end up, why do you have why do you have an economy that destroys the land that is the basis of all life? You know, why would you have an economy that harms the earth? And then when you start asking that, you start asking when did it start? Where did it start? How did it start? And you know, it's the same with um no matter what form of activism you're taking. It's once the questions start, it's you know, a lot of women who begin by wanting to be anti-battering activists or anti-rape activists, they end up questioning patriarchy. You know, it's like once those questions start, you start weaving them all the way back. So that's sort of a, a five-minute version of, of how I got to where I am today. From that, it sounds that it's been a series of questions from a young age that just keep taking you further and further away from the world as it seems to the world that it is, if that simple distinction makes sense. I like the part about questions. I don't quite understand the world as it seems and the world as it is. I don't know what that means. That there's a cultural story that we're told about the world as it exists in the way that it is, that there's this certain hegemony that we exist within because that is the dominant culture. But then as you start asking questions, you find the cracks 
And instead of seeing the symptoms of what exists, you start finding the root causes of it. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. And, you know, I think about that. There's there are these little sort of chinks in the discourse, little holes of of where you can um, there, there's something doesn't work, little pieces of cognitive dissonance. You know, another place that I saw that having to do not with the natural world, but with um, the treatment of women is I noticed that when there were rape scenes in films, oftentimes I would end up feeling really, really traumatized. And not just because rape is traumatic, but instead because so many of the rape scenes in movies, you see this all the time, they start with a man assaulting the woman, and by the end of the scene, she's got her arms around him and she's pulling him close. Dr. Zhivago does this. B for Vendetta did an equivalent of this, where the guy holds the woman in, in, in solitary confinement and he basically tortures her, and then as soon as she gets out, one of the first things she says is, I don't remember if it's I love you or I miss you. And um, On the Waterfront has an equivalent of this. You see this in so many films. And then you contrast that with the rape scene in Deliverance, where it's a guy who's getting raped, which is one of the most horrific scenes in all of film history. So you start asking, why is this happening? What's the, what's the story behind it? And it's the same it's exactly the same with the natural world. And, you know, I'm, I'm working on a book right now. I'm almost done with it on human supremacism, how right now I'm debunking where somebody is saying that, human, that, that intelligence is lethal because humans are destroying the planet and humans are intelligent. Well, so first off, everybody else is intelligent, too. And second, you know, the Talawa lived where I live now for 12,500 years. They didn't destroy the place. It wasn't because they were stupid, you know. So it's because of these cultural narratives. And so – my point in bringing all that up is just finding those places where something feels not quite right and then asking why. You know, when I, when I used to teach, I used to have this game I would play with my students. I still do this all the time with my own writing. I call it the annoying child routine or the annoying child game or whatever, which is I say something and then I just pretend that I'm, you know, a young child and say why. And so, for example – the most recent paragraph I was just writing like two minutes before we got on. Agriculture destroys soil, which is the base of terrestrial life. One way it kills soil is through causing erosion. It is the leading anthropogenic cause of erosion. What do you expect to happen when you remove the protective covering of plants? The plants were there for a reason. Parentheses. Oh, that's right. I forgot. There is no purpose or reason or function or intelligence in nature. And parentheses. Removing the plants, which is the function of one of this culture's greatest achievements. And yes, plants don't have functions, but plows do. The plow is removing the soil's protective covering. It is the equivalent of flaying the biome was being converted to cropland. So, okay, the question I would ask then is, why is using a plow the equivalent of flaying a biome? It's like, well, okay, I need to explain that. And then it can ask, you can go all sorts of directions with this, why? Um, why would we do this? Why? And so that's a question I ask constantly, and I think it's a really important question for us to ask. You know, why... Why is U.S. foreign policy the way it is? Why does the United States military have to invade lots of countries? Why do, why do there have to be colonies? You know, what, what are the points of those? Why, why does there have to be slavery? I think these are, you know, just desperately important questions. You know, we, we always talk about how smart we are, but let's, let's actually use this much-vaunted intelligence to ask some real questions. There's something that one of my instructors shared with me early on in one of my courses, and it was, I believe it was a quote from the monk Thich Nhat Hanh. The quote was that we need to hurry up and do nothing. And from the place that I came from before I really started kind of inhabiting my own story and doing the work that I now enjoy doing every day, 
there was always this pressure to do more and more and more. And my wife and I have talked about it before, that there kind of becomes this intellectual deficit as you're using your time and your energy in order to just answer the questions of this basic existence to get from one moment to the next, that it doesn't, re- doesn't provide time to contemplate and to ask questions like why and to investigate those things when the place that we inhabit within the culture is pushing us to do more and more and more and not even taking the time to ask whether or not we need to stop. Well, I think that's a really good point, too. And it reminds me of a line I read in a book by Joseph Campbell in my early 20s that was very formative for me. And it has to do with, it has to do with, I'm going to butcher this quote, but basically, until recently, you know, within the last few hundred years or whatever, people of all ages have understood that to have anything approaching a spiritual life, the first requirement was leisure. And at this point, I want to put an asterisk on that too, because I think a lot of people come up with a lot of excuses not to be activists and not to actually do good things. And one of them is, I just don't have time. So I also want to shut that down. It's like, I'm sorry, if you have time to watch TV, you got time to be an activist, even though we all need, you know, I'm incredibly prolific, but I also, you know, I watch baseball games with my mom. I play computer games sometimes. You know, we need downtime too. Of course, I take, I'm constantly taking walks through the forest. But at the same time, I've also established a life where I've set up that I've got this leisure in the first place. And I'm not criticizing people at all. You know, I've got my niece has she's married and she has three children who are all under the age of four or something. <laughs> and I am not suggesting that, you know, I mean, she she doesn't even have time to sleep, much less actually, you know, contemplate anything, which is having an effect on her life because it's. She's finding herself basically reacting to this and this and this as opposed to being able to contemplate what her best choices would be. And so, yeah, there is so much that one of the things that this culture does is provide all these both distractions and time wasters. Like, I don't know if this happens to you, but I am so happy when I get up and do my thing and then I turn on the computer and the internet is down, my internet connection is down, it's like, oh, thank God, you know? And my day suddenly gets a lot longer. And that's, you know, my, my point is that that we are provided, not only do we have, you know, the workaday things that we have to do and, you know, work for a living and all that, but then in addition, there are so many ways to kill time. And that just breaks my heart too, because we only have one life and, you know, even though I just said that, um, you know, I do downtime and like play computer game. I mean, do, do I? Here's the thing. Also, I remember this. Is another thing that was very, infor- very formative for me was when I was in eighth grade. I went out for football, which was just dreadful. And I remember this older friend of mine. He was in tenth grade. He said to me before I went out for it. He said, "You know, no matter how tired you get out on the practice field, just give it everything you've got because you don't want to look back and say." I could have tried harder. And then this was really true because I had such a bad experience with my junior high school varsity teams that I didn't go out for any sports in high school. And then eventually I went out for high jumping in college. I knew I loved high jumping ever since I was a kid, but I didn't go out because I didn't have the confidence. And then I went out only when I was a sophomore in college. 
And by the time I was a senior, I broke the conference record or tied the conference record. Sorry, tied the conference record, broke the school record, won the conference championship. And the point is, I will never know how good I could have been because I ran out of time. I, I graduated from college. And I don't want that to happen with other parts of my life where I don't want to go to my grave saying I could have written more books. I could have tried harder. My books could have been more honest. I could have, you know, I completely agree with what you're saying about the need for downtime or leisure time or the, the need for not busyness. Like that's so important. And at the same time, and I don't think this is in contradiction at all, actually, it's just another angle, is there's this quote that I read by this writer, Charles Johnson, that has always really influenced me too, which is, he said, what would you write if somebody put a gun to your head and they said, I'm going to shoot you when you write the last word of the last paragraph of the last page? And he says, if you're writing as though it's the last testament you can ever make, if you're writing as though if you don't say this, it will never be said, then you're going to write with an honesty and an urgency that might be absent otherwise. And I think about that with living, too. And I don't actually live like every day as though it could be my last. I don't think that that would be a very good thing to do in many ways, too, because, you know, obviously, if I live every day as though it's going to be my last, I'm not going to floss my teeth. You know, it's like. You know, there's no reason to take – I was like I was just reading – and sorry I'm rambling, but this – this I just was was reading the other day about death cap mushrooms. It ends up – and they're horribly they, – they kill you. They, so death cap. I mean let's not get – I'm not promoting the eating of these. But it ends up that they're one of the most delicious mushrooms. So it's like I was thinking, yeah, you're living every day like it's your last. Maybe you'd eat some death cap mushrooms because they taste really good and then you know you're going to die anyway in three hours. So you don't live like that. But the point is to live with that urgency of recognizing I am living now. I'm going to go one more direction with this, which is that there's a, a friend of mine who always says to people, what are the largest, most pressing problems that you can help to solve using the gifts that are unique to you in all the universe? And you know, people have often said to me, gosh, Jack, you've written all these books. Why don't you quit writing and become an organizer? I was like, I don't really like organizing. I'm terribly disorganized, and I don't really like talking to people. So I'm an introvert. So – it's like I would be bad at that. So what are the things I can do with my gifts? People ask me all the time, what should I do? And I always say, I can't tell you what to do because I don't know what your gifts are. I don't know what you love doing. And I love writing. And I don't love organizing. I know, I know people who love organizing. And I love people who are very methodical. And there's need for that too. And there's need for, for all of this. And what are the largest, most pressing problems that you can help to solve using the gifts that are unique to you and all the universe? And another part of this is that years and years ago, uh, Ward Churchill wrote this essay slamming Jerry Mander's book, In the Absence of the Sacred. And I asked Jeanette Armstrong what she thought about that. And she said if Ward didn't like it, he should write his own book. And that's always struck me, too, is that instead of complaining, you know, one of the reasons I write the stuff I do is because I saw some holes in discourse and what I mean by that is that I didn't see many people connecting what's happening to the planet to the larger question of civilization, to civilization killing the planet. And also, I didn't see any militants in the environmental movement. I saw a little bit in feminism. I saw a fair amount among members of some oppressed classes, like I saw some militants within African Americans. I saw it within American Indians. And I saw it among some other subgroups, too. But I didn't see any in the environmental movement. Instead of me just complaining about it, I just decided to go. It's like, okay, nobody's doing it. Looks like I got something to do. And I think that that's 
really important for all of us. I heard this environmentalist from the UK was making this joke about how when he first became an activist, he um, would go up to all the experienced activists and he would say, hey, I got an idea for a campaign. Let's do this. Why don't you do this and this and this? And they would say, well, that's a great idea. Why don't you do it? And, you know, that's the thing. I get a lot of people writing to me also saying, hey, why don't you write a book about this? And I always write the same thing back to them, which is, that sounds like a great idea. If it is a great idea, that sounds like a great idea. Why don't you do it? You know, you got some energy around that. And so I think, and what's my point of all this is that, okay, I'm going to back up again and talk about the leisure thing. And people have, have come to me, some young people have come to me sometimes and said, so what should we do? What are we, how should we work on these issues? And especially they've come to me and they say, I don't know what I love. And I say, okay, the first thing you need to do is to figure out what you love. And then, you know, you're like 19 years old. So what you should do is spend from 19 to 22, figuring out 25 or however long it takes, figuring out where it is, how you can serve the land base. And then once you find that, you know, then you can just take off and you'll spend your 20s figuring out how you can, where you fit in. That's your job in your late teens and early 20s. Just figure out how you fit in, what your role is going to be, and then you can spend the rest of your life doing it. As I mentioned before we began, I have a particular bias because of my background, but what you just brought up about finding out what it is that you want to do, what you love, and where you fit in is a large part of the conversation among many of the reformers in education right now to find a calling first and then to seek a career that fits that in order to meld this passion and love of what it is that we want to do and see in the world with what it is that we actually take action towards. And that can be a really, really daunting task. There's another, another line by Joseph Campbell, and I think it's really important you're doing that and helping others to do it. And there's a, there's a line by Joseph Campbell also where he talks about how if the signs and symbols of a, of a culture m- work for you, if they provide meaning in your life, then you will have meaning in your life. So, for example, if, if Catholicism works for you such that the host and the – all the, the signs and symbols of Catholicism work for you, you have a life of meaning set out for you. Um, you will find meaning in your life. And the same is true for capitalism. If the American dream really works for you, then you will have some set of signs that provide some meaning in your life. We all need meaning in, in your life. And if they don't work for you or if they produce – some sort of deviant effects, you know, if they, they, they don't provide, they don't, I think that's his language. They don't, they don't actually mean what the culture says they mean. If they mean something else to you, then you'll need to set out on what he called, and sorry about the sexism, what he called a hero's journey. And that's where you need to go out and try to find meaning on your own. And that is the function of a lot of mythology is to tell people those stories of how to find meaning in your life, how to, how to go out on those journeys. And, so one of the points that's also really important is that it can be really, really hard work and it can be really daunting, it can be dangerous and it can be scary because you don't have these thousands of years of history of meaning set up for you. Instead, you have to find it and that, that this is something most people and, – and this is one of the reasons you need that leisure is to be able to – you know, here's 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 how I write, and everybody who's listening to this is seeing why I write my books in a nonlinear fashion because I I jump topics. It's just how I think. But the point is that the way I write is that I can tell when I'm writing stuff that's working 
and I can tell when I'm writing stuff that's not working. What I can't tell when it's not working, I can't tell what I would need to do to make it so it does work. I just know that it's it's basically sort of a yes-no thing. The way, the way I sort of perceive it would be like maybe a dog following a scent. I'm on the scent. Great. I can, I can go. I can trot pretty fast. Okay, I've lost the scent. I don't know where the scent is, but it's not here. And so that really takes time and takes me sort of backing up and takes me casting about trying this. Is the scent over here? Is the scent over here? And the reason I bring this up right now is because that's also how I've lived my life. That when I feel like I'm on the right, I hate to use this word because it's so cliched, but when I'm on the right path, then you know, when I'm following the scent, then everything is is working out. And then when I'm not following the scent, I just need to sit. And you know, when I am following the scent, I can I can move pretty quickly. But when I'm not, then that's when I really need that leisure to just sit. And you know, it's not just leisure then too. It's leisure other times too, because you know, if I have to do a lot of socialization then it takes me time just to get back and find that scent again. I want to say one more thing about all of this, too, which is there's this delightful word, odemonia, which I may be mispronouncing. It's Aristotle called that the point of life. And what that meant, it's often mistranslated as happiness. But what it really should mean is fittingness. And what it literally means is finding a friendly daemon. And what, what it's based on is this idea that after you die, you spend, I don't know, 100 lifetimes or something being treated as people treated, as you treated other people here. And then right before you come back to live again, then you are given a purpose here in life. And the last thing that you do before you come here is you drink something that causes you to forget it. And then you're, what you're supposed to do here in life is spend your time trying to figure out what that purpose was and do it. And to do so, you need you need to follow a daemon, to follow a genius, to follow a muse is the language we would probably use. And the whole point of life is to fit your life to that purpose that was given you before you came here. And, you know, we don't have to invoke, you know, having been given a purpose before you got here. We can either invoke it or not. It doesn't really matter. The point is to figure out what is the life that you should actually be living? From there, with where we were at the very beginning and this idea of disconnect of mankind from nature and this cycle of violence that comes from it, is this question of what it is in life that is our purpose? Is that a place where if we're not given an opportunity that we get further and further disconnected from from the world and the place that we should be living that leads to further and further discontent? Well, I want to say a couple of things. One of them is that so many indigenous people have said to me that the fundamental difference between Western and indigenous ways of being is even most open-minded Westerners generally perceive listening to the natural world as a metaphor as opposed to the way the world really is. Where if I say the trees said that, usually people think that's a metaphor, but I actually think the trees, the trees talk. And trees talk to each other. They talk to everybody else. Everybody's talking to everybody. Everybody is a... This tree that I'm looking at right now has a life that is just as valuable to it as mine is to me and yours is to you. And it has neighbors. It has relationships. And we all have relationships. And, okay, that's one piece of information I want to put in. Another piece of information I want to put in is that R.D. Lang had this great line, how do you plug a void, plugging a void? And 
what he meant by that or what I perceive he meant by that was that if you attempt to plug some hole in your existence with another hole, it's not going to work. So if you feel empty in your life and you try to fill that emptiness with money, this is where we get back to the Joseph Campbell signs and producing deviant effects. Um, if you have a hole in your life and you try to fill it with money, money's not going to fill that hole. And, you know, I remember seeing this sign for an advertisement, Radio Shack, years ago that had this kid opening all these electronics. This is in the 90s. Opening all these electronics gifts for Christmas. And the caption was, we know what he wants for Christmas. And I was thinking, no, what he really wants is time and love and affection. But he'll settle for electronic crap if nothing else works. Or if he doesn't get the others. And so that's avoid plugging a void. If you try to plug some existential emptiness with consumer goods, with with money, with any of those things, they can – it's not going to fill it and you've got to keep going. It ends up being an addiction. And my point in putting those two together, the thing about the non-humans, the world being alive, is that I think that there's this great emptiness – in us because we are living absent the way we are supposed to live. We are we, we evolved embedded in a land base and we embedded having homes. We evolved with intimate relations. I don't want intimate to be uh, I'm not talking sexual here. I'm talking I'm talking intimate. I mean we don't need to, to co opt see that's another problem is that even things like that in places like that where we used to be intimate with the entire world, and now intimacy has been reduced in its meaning to just join genitals for, you know, in some meanings of the word, join genitals for that time as opposed to a larger context. You know, I interviewed Vine Deloria years ago, and one of the things he was talking about is he had all these students who would go out for a hike and then think that they had experienced nature. And he said, that's just an aesthetic experience. In order to have a relationship, you have to spend a long, long time and you have to get to know each other over seasons. And this is true for human-human relationships. It's true for, you know, human-canine relationships. It's true for all relationships. They take time to develop. And part of the problem is that within patriarchy, we have... And this is true for any supremacism, that one of the things that happens with human supremacism, white supremacism, male supremacism, is you define yourself as superior to these others, which means you're also defining yourself only in relation to these others. You're defining yourself as superior because you find some other and you then define them as inferior and exploitable. And then you validate your superiority by violating them and the problem is, or one of the problems is, that that doesn't fill that existential hole that you felt in the first place. And so you've got to violate them again and then find somebody new to violate. And because if you're a supremacist, you are always encountering new others, that means that this hole can never be filled because you can always – there might always be somebody who is not – whom you can't classify as your inferior, which means you've got to do this continuing cycle of violation and – it's endless, which is one reason the world's being killed. And there's this, and it, it has to do with this fundamental existential loneliness of not being in place. There's this line I heard by this astronomer a few years ago that just cracked me up. It was, 
he was saying, why do we need to explore Mars? We need to explore Mars for that most basic question of all, are we all alone? And I was thinking, you're nuts. Are we all alone? How can you ask if we're all alone when, you know, there's a dragonfly right there and over here there's a sow bug and then there's a bear I saw yesterday and there's a willow tree here. How can you say we're all alone? The only way you can say we're all alone is if you define yourself as separate from everybody else. And once you define yourself as separate from everybody else, all sorts of insanity follows. And then this this leads to one of the ways the insanity, the insanity follows is that I love the analysis of John Livingston who wrote that you know we talk about cities as places of sensory overload and there's a sense in which they are. You know every time I go on tour, when I get into the city, when I get to my hotel room, I shut the drapes and turn off the lights and I just I have to stay like that because I'm just so overwhelmed with all the sharp corners and all the people and it's just it's just too much for me and I feel abraded. And that's true on one level, but on the other hand, he also says, I mean but on the other hand, there's also this point of when you're in a city especially, all of your perceptions are either created by or mediated by one source, by other humans. And that creates this incredible not only loneliness, but also insanity. It's a sensory deprivation tank because you are only getting echoes of your own voice as opposed to the voice of the meadowlarks, the voice of the wren tits, the voice of the grasshoppers, the voice of the wind. And you come to believe that only human things matter, which is how you can end up with lots of people caring about the stock market as opposed to, you know, there are scientists who are saying the oceans could be devoid of fish within 35 years. And this is not front page news. You come to believe that only the human matters because it's only the human you ever see. And there's this huge hole that's created by that that then leads to these further violations and further violations and further violations. It speaks to something, though, that I've experienced time and time again in group dynamics and other places that for all of my work in walking the landscape and trying to reconnect and establish a sense of place where I am, so much of the dialogue, as much as I look at philosophical hermeneutics and the idea that I can be having a conversation with anything around me, it's still within the human world that so many of my ideas and notions have been built. I don't think we can avoid that. And we also, we can't avoid a human perspective, just like a salmon can't avoid a salmon perspective. You know, we have... A perspective and things will be filtered in certain ways, even on a physical level. You know, you know how honeybees see way different than humans, right? And well, that's true for everybody. I mean, cats see different, dogs see different, and we'll never know. I mean, I can't see like a dog, a dog can't see like me. So there are some, even on a perceptual level, there are things that we can't share. But having said that, ask me your question again. So it was basically about when you walk, when you try to establish a relationship with a land base, you. It's still being filtered through human concepts and conceptions, that it's an echo back from my experience as a human being, not necessarily as kind of releasing myself to be an animal in nature again. See, I don't think, well, a couple things. One is I don't think that can be avoided because you are a human. And, you know, I talked about this in one of my books, I think Dreams, where, you know, we can never know the experience of another. I I mean, I will never know what it's like to even pee from the perspective of a woman, you know? 
and I'll never know what it's like to have sex from the perspective of a woman. But what we can do, so there, there are differences, but the part of the key is to recognize that the differences don't imply superiority, that because you're human, that doesn't mean you are superior to the willow tree. That's part of it. And then the other is just to ask, you know, what is it like to be you? And to just ask that question and not expect an answer right away. You know, I was uh, my the person who cuts my hair has retired. And so she cuts it at home and she cut my hair the other day. And then I put my backpack in the in the hallway and then I went and sat next to my backpack when we we're done. And I was going to you know pay her and her cockatoo walked up to me and then was making affectionate noises. And then when I would go to pet it, it would walk. It would like go a few steps away and then it would make affectionate noises and come up and then I would go to pet it and it would walk away. And she said, oh, that she's like that. She only likes to be petted when she wants to be petted. And I started laughing. I was thinking, yeah, this is how everybody is. And, you know, non-humans will present themselves to us when they want to present themselves to us. And they won't when they won't. And that's the thing about them being wild animals is that they aren't dependent upon us and the relationship is on their terms. And, you know, it may speak to you at some point. It may not. And, you know, I, when I first moved to the land where I live, I love this land very much. I've been here about 15 years. And for the first couple of years, I basically felt like a good Nazi. You know, it's like I felt like the land was thinking, OK, he's here. This is fine. But he's still a human and humans are, are really messing up this whole place. We don't really trust him. And I kept saying, no, 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 I'm a nice guy. Really, I'm a nice guy. And whatever. And then there was like a week where. I found this guy on this land cutting parts of redwood trees off, burls. And I kicked him off the land all three times. And it was extraordinary because the relationship with the land changed dramatically very quickly after that. The three things happened right away. One of them was I saw the biggest pile of bear poop I'd ever seen, um, which now seeing bear poop is completely – I mean, I'm lucky when I don't step in it. It's, It's everywhere now. And the second is I saw the biggest red-legged frog I've ever seen. And this is all just in a couple days. And then the third thing was I was walking past these bushes and this bird flew out of the bush and brushed it, brushed my chest with its wing. And that was the one that really threw me over the edge with that one. And ever since then, the relationship with the land has been entirely – the feeling of the relationship with the land. You know, God knows how much I'm projecting. You know, we always have to worry about projection. But that's why I said those three things that happened in physical reality – but the feeling has been that the land has said, oh, yeah, he actually did something to protect us. Maybe he's OK. And my experience with the land has been one of increasing trust since then, it feels like. And so that's another thing is like not only sitting on the land and not only asking the land, what does it want, but also doing tangible things to help the land. You know, it's like. I don't mean to be too basic, but, you know, it's kind of nice. I mean, something that makes me like a friend more is when the friend does something for me, you know. And part of the reason that I go watch baseball games at my mom's is because she's getting old. And like a friend of mine says, we need help at the beginning and at the end. And, you know, I carry in the firewood for her and I do things for her and I don't do them. You know, somebody interviewed me not very long ago and was saying, Wow, so when you do things for the land, does it help you feel more intimate with the land? It's like, no, I just, I mean, this is what you do for those you care about. And, you know, when I carry wood in for my mom, that doesn't make me feel more intimate with her, frankly. It's just, it's like, well, 
Okay, so this afternoon, I mean, yesterday I planted some amaryllis bulbs for her, and today I carry in some wood, and tomorrow I'll clean her dishwasher, you know, whatever. It's just, this is what we do for for those we care about. Um, oh, another thing I do here is I walk through the forest every day, all the time, and whenever I can, I try to leave some sort of food out in the forest for somebody or another, whether it's whether it's bread or pieces of paper that will um, that will eventually be eaten by the um, fungus or composted soil. You know, I'm always just putting putting something out there for somebody to eat, just because. And I don't know if, if that actually makes a difference with the relationship here or not, but it just seems like a nice thing to do. And so that's just another thing is, okay, first off, you can't, I don't think we can get out of our perspective as humans. We, we might be able to, for short periods of time, just you know, enter some sort of state of grace where we can see things from other perspectives. But for me, at least, that's not, that's not an everyday occurrence. Um, okay, so I was, I was walking with my niece and her husband through the forest here, and he's, he's Chinese, and um, he was saying, wow, these, these forests are really pretty, and redwoods, they're the most expensive wood in China. These would make so much good furniture. And when he left, I was saying to the forest, it's like, no, no, it's not going to happen. And the point is that not only do we have our human perspective, but we also have this utilitarian perspective or this civilized perspective of perceiving the world as objects to be exploited and not other beings to enter into a relationship with. And we can't do anything about the fact that we perceive the world as humans, I think. I mean, people could argue with me with that. Maybe they would say we'd take mushrooms or something. I don't know. But uh, I'm not, that's not my point. My point is what we can do is we can decolonize our perspective as civilized humans who perceive the world only in terms of exploitable objects and who perceive the world, perceive ourselves as superior to everyone else. That is something we can do. And it takes time, takes a lot of work. And, you know, that's, I think this is really important. And something I've said so many times, like there's this, this line in the newspaper that was um, the reason that crabbers work so hard during the season is that it's like if there were all these little packets of $1.50 each, envelopes of $1.50 each on the ground, you'd pick them up as fast as you could because they get a buck fifty per crab. And the problem is that they're not actually envelopes of $1.50. Each of those are creatures with their lives that are just as valuable to them as yours is to you and mine is to me. And it's the same with there's this great line by a Canadian lumberman. When I look at trees, I see dollar bills. And if when you look at trees, you see dollar bills, you treat them one way. Same with women. If when you look at women, you see orifices, you're going to treat them one way. If when you look at women, you see women, you'll treat them differently. When you look at this particular woman, you see this particular woman, you'll treat her differently still. And that we can do something about. We can move our perception from perceiving the world as objects to be exploited to other beings and to we can enter into a relationship with. And we can move our perception further to being in a relationship with this particular tree who has this or that need. This tree who might be threatened by this or that thing, or this tree who might want to be left alone, or this tree who might want you to sit near it, or this tree who might not want you to sit near it. And so I think we can work very hard on that. And that's one of the problems with this whole culture is everything in this culture is teaching us to perceive women as orifices, to perceive women as viable, to perceive trees as timber, to perceive trees as dollars on the stump. You know, have you ever noticed that when there's any article about any endangered species, every single time the damn article has to include 
the economic value of that creature. Every single time they have to say, oh, salmon populations are collapsing. This is going to cost British Columbia $100 million a year. It was like, that's what's important to them every time. And that's something that needs to change. And that we can change our perspective personally. And that's why I write. One of the reasons I write is to change that perspective socially. You've taken me on quite a journey. With where we are for time, I would like to ask you if you have any final thoughts to share with the listeners before we draw this to a close. I guess I would like to thank you for your really good questions and to thank you for your work in environmental education and in helping others to see the world as consisting of other other beings whose lives are as valuable to them as ours are to us. And then I guess the last thing I would like to say is the last thing I always say, which is that the world is being killed and we need to to stop that. And, you know, that's another thing is this perception of the world as resources strikes me as well as destructive, as well as insane. It strikes me as incredibly ungrateful. And this is the world that gave us life. This is the world that gave you life. This is the world that gave me life. But my life is a result of this planet. And it seems incredibly ungrateful for me not to spend my life in gratitude and in defense of the planet who made it so I am alive and who made it so I can have all of this joy and sorrow and everything else, every experience, every relationship I've ever had has been made possible by this planet. And, you know, Meister Eckhart said that if you only make one prayer in your life, the prayer thank you would be sufficient. And I really like that. And I think it's true so long as thank you, like love, is a verb and it's active. And, you know, words are cheap and it's completely, you know, big deal. I say thank you to the planet. How does that manifest in my life? And how does that manifest? How do I defend the planet I love and the planet to whom I owe my life, what better use can I put can I put my life toward than protecting that when it's threatened? And that was Derek Jensen. Thank you for joining me for this interview. The powerful conversation that we had leaves me in a place where I'm still examining what he shared in the context of permaculture and what it means to create a better world. This conversation leaves me wondering what my role is in continuing to participate in the framework of the culture that we have as it exists. What can I do to lessen my own harm and to increase my beneficial impact, to borrow from Larry Santoyo, to make my handprint even bigger than my footprint? We all have a place in doing something positive for life here on Earth. What that is varies so widely that we may share the path but each of us is on our own journey. With that, I leave you to consider your place and what you can do to make a difference. As always, I'm here to help you in whatever way I can, so please get in touch. Email show at permaculturepodcast.com or call 717-827-6266. You can also write to me, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next episode of the show on December 31st, 2014 discusses the plan for the podcast in 2015, and after that will be January 7th, 
to begin the new year by looking back over the best of 2014. May the remainder of this year be bountiful for all of you as you take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.